whoever we are and whatever we believe, and I know in a room filled with this many people, we're all across the spectrum. Every one of us has a longing for life. We long to live. The challenge or the problem is that we're stuck in a world of death. Like the runner in a baseball game caught in a pickle, whichever direction we run, death is there waiting to tag us. And to be sure, in this world, we can do amazing things, write poetry, make music and arts, we can walk on the moon, create artificial intelligence, we can harness the power of the sun and the wind for energy, we can raise children, and yes, we can even run marathons. But we can't, we can't escape death. The proudest and strongest among us, if we live long enough, will grow old, frail, weak, and eventually succumb to the grave. The essayist and sports writer Roger Angel provides a telling look at this process, quite honest, in his award-winning piece entitled This Old Man, written in 2014, published in The New Yorker, at the age of 93. He's actually still alive and 101 now. And he describes his condition, arthritis, macular degeneration, heart blockages, nerve damage from about the shingles in 1996, a knee that doesn't work a herniated disc, pills, pills, and more pills. He writes, as of right now, I'm not Christopher Hitchens or Tony Jute or Nora Ephron. I'm not dead and not yet mindless in a reliable upstate facility. But he continues with unflinching honesty, decline and disaster impend. Again, drew so much attention because he was so honest. However great the world is and however great life is, however much we may soar, we all eventually hit a ceiling and come crashing down. Try as we might to go up, and we do try really hard in our lives. We all use a little bit of a different mechanism, but we try. We're still going down. It's a bit like when we were kids at the mall and we tried to go up the down escalator. We didn't make it very far. We can't break through. We're surrounded and stalked by death. But that's not all, because from a Christian perspective, death is just the last and strongest entity in a long list of life-diminishing realities. Let me name just a few. Envy, pride, consuming lust, insecurity, unyielding self-centeredness, greed, sickness, our own lack of motivation. How are you doing on those New Year's resolutions? It's April. Many of these things come from inside of us. Many of them actually come from outside of us, happen to us from the outside and cause us real pain and sorrow. Both kinds diminish life and all are related like one big extended family to death itself. The Christian word for these things is sin. Life lived out of sync with the Creator's design and will. And they master us, causing miniature deaths in our lives every day and all of them pointing beyond themselves to death itself, that final great extinguisher of life. I don't think anyone, anyone here would deny that we are subject to death. That would be a hard argument to make. The evidence is pretty overwhelming. But many do deny that we're subject to sin. The biblical claim is that to be subject to the one means that we are subject to the other. Whether we know it or acknowledge it, or not. 
But we weren't made for this imprisonment and sin and death. We weren't made to be consumed by fear, anxiety, pain, and sorrow. I think we all know that. Something deep within us reminds us of that, deep in our bones. We were made to live. And the question is, is there a way out of this world of death into life? Full life, genuine life, unending life. Those who are in prison need help from the outside. Consider Joaquin Guzman, otherwise known as El Chapo, the Mexican drug lord who, whose escape from a maximum security prison in Mexico in 2015 was pretty extraordinary. Some of you will remember the story, but members of his drug cartel dug a tunnel from a so-called construction site not too far from the prison, about a mile long, 30 feet underground, right up to his bathroom in his prison cell. And that tunnel was the passageway for Guzman from imprisonment to freedom. Six months later, he was recaptured, extradited to America, and he's now serving a life sentence in a supermax prison in Colorado. And because he is a prisoner, we should pray for him. Or consider Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon in the film The Martian, which I'm sure many of you have seen, left on Mars in a climate that is inhospitable to life for all of its brilliance and innovation. And there was much. He soars quite high, but he still hits a ceiling. He can't overcome his hostile environment, which is not native to life. He needs rescue from the outside, a passageway to life. The great joy of this day for us as followers of Jesus is the provision of a passageway out of death into life, but it's not a tunnel, and it's not a spaceship. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. And he is the divine Son of God who comes to us from the outside and becomes one of us so that he might rescue us from the inside. It's an incredible reality of what God has done. The angels declared to the women in Luke 24, verse 6, he is not here but has risen. And when they did so, they bore witness to Jesus' resurrection, that this once fully dead person, he had died on a Roman cross just three days earlier, this once fully dead person who was buried in a tomb, that he was now alive, physically alive. This is not some spiritual vision about Jesus kind of reigning in some ethereal way. He's a physical being that has been re resurrected to new life, matter. His new body bears in it the scars of the iron nails that went through his hands and his feet to hang him on the cross. Paul declares in Romans 6 verse 4 that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So what I want us to do is to consider three brief points from Paul's reflections on the personal ramifications of this amazing event that we declare as the Christian church today, the resurrection of Jesus, out of the passage Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 14. You have Bibles in your pews, and I would encourage you to take one out maybe share one with your neighbor. This is found on page 942. First question, what does the resurrection of Jesus signify? Three days ago on Good Friday, we were here reflecting on the cross of Jesus, on his suffering, the mocking, the beating, the God-forsaken cry, the betrayal, the heart failure, the suffocation, and the final gasp. All of this was most certain defeat. All of this demonstrated that everything that Jesus had said about the coming of God's kingdom, everything he had said about himself being the agent of that inauguration of this new way of life, was a fraud. 
There he was, naked, dehumanized, hanging on a Roman cross, taken down as completely dead and buried in a tomb. No one could have imagined on that day that what was really going on was that Jesus, moved by love for us, moved by love and obedience to his Father, was winning the cosmic battle for humanity. The resurrection three days later that we celebrate today declares unambiguously his apparent defeat to be a resounding victory. Our great enemy is not the competitor in the lane next to us. It's not the boyfriend or girlfriend who hurt us badly or wronged us. It's not the dad who never cared. It's not the business that competes with the same market share as ours and makes our life difficult. It's not the daughter who broke our heart. It's not even our own tempers or the bad habits that we just can't seem to shake and of which we are ashamed. Our great enemy is sin and death itself. These life-mocking, life-diminishing powers from which none of us could escape. None, that is, but one. Yes, others like Lazarus and the widow's son had been brought back from the dead, but they would die again. We call that resuscitation. Jesus was resurrected. Resurrected, that means that he has, been, he has inaugurated a whole new kind of life, a new creation life, a life over which death no longer has any uh, power or voice. So look with me at verses 9 and 10 of Romans 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What Paul is saying is the power of death has been broken, defeated. In Hebrews, we read that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. Jesus conquered. He came through death to the other side. And like entering a rental car return lot, there is no going back. The resurrection is the bedrock. It is the cornerstone. It's the heart of the Christian faith and hope. Jesus breaks through the barrier and he makes a way where there was no way. He punches a, a hole into the wall of sin and death. He breaks through the ceiling. He puts, cuts a path through the jungle. He is the great pioneer who, in his own person and because of his great love, takes humanity on his back and brings us with him through death to the other side, no longer under the dominion of sin and death, but now forgiven and fully alive to God, to life, to righteousness, to holiness, which is a new kind of wholeness that we all deeply long for. Luke tells us that at the moment of his death, the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that sin, in fact, had been dealt with at the cross and that the pathway was now open, that there was access to God, the God of life, unending, abundant, overflowing life. That pathway has now been opened up through Jesus' death and resurrection. So second question, how do we take that path? How do we walk on that passage? How do we take this way out? 
Because here is Jesus raised from the dead, standing now on resurrection ground and issuing through his disciples in the church throughout the centuries this invitation to come and follow me. Follow me through death to life on the other side. And the way we respond to that invitation is through repentance and faith, signified in our text in Romans 6 through the ritual act of baptism, which we will witness together in just a moment. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 6 with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Admitted to the waters of baptism, and we will be reminded of this in just a moment, is contingent upon embracing Jesus as Lord upon believing in him and having faith. That means that we renounce all other lords, including ourselves. And what do lords do? They tell you how to live. We renounce all of them. That's what we call repentance. And it means, on the flip side, embracing the one true Lord of the world, the resurrected King Jesus, who is not just Lord of the world, but whom we say by faith is my Lord and my God. He's running my life now. He's leading me. I'm following him. He's directing me. This is the end of self-reliance and autonomy and the beginning of a new kind of dependence and obedience, which is not humiliating at all, but which is tremendously life-giving, restoring us to who we were always meant to be as those creatures of God. This response, this personal, and it is a personal response, signified in baptism, unites us with him so that now we can say what is true of him is true of us. He has died, so have I. He has been raised, so have I. I'm sure some of you in this room have been tandem skydiving. I've never done it, but I can imagine it's a lot of fun. As the master skydiver jumps off the plane, you jump too, because you are tied to him. As he free falls, you free fall too. You don't have a clue what you're doing, and you would be splattered on the earth below if you were by yourself, but you are strapped to him having the time of your life. And as he pulls the cord to release his chute, that sh your chute opens. And as he lands safely on the ground below, you land safely on the ground below. His landing is your landing. Why? Because you are quite literally tied to him. You are united to him. So too with Christ, by faith, through the Spirit, we are united to him so that what he does is now what we have done. And he has died to sin once for all. Sin no longer has dominion over him. And we have died too. And he has been raised to newness of life. And we have been raised too. That's what happens when we take this passage away. So third then, what do we find on the other side? when we unite to Jesus by faith, when we take this way out. It's not that when we unite to Jesus that suddenly life becomes great and easy. The problems go away. No, we still have bodies that get old and die, as many of us are reminded about far too often. Sin and death, which have been conquered, nonetheless still cause pain, suffering, and alienation. But now, in the present, we discover that sin's power over us has been broken, and there is life bubbling up 
Because of our union with Christ, this old man or old self that was enslaved to envy, greed, lust, pride, violence, and countless other things like those was verse 6, look with me at verse 6, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are, as Paul says in verse 7, set free from sin. In verse 4, he says, we can now walk in newness of life, forgiven of all past wrongs. We are free to live, to genuinely live, in step with God, the creator of the world, to become healthy people who comprise a healthy community of love to the glory of God together. And we are empowered and encouraged and comforted along this way by the presence and power of the living, resurrected King Jesus through his Spirit. There's a long-standing member of our community who 32 years ago on Good Friday took this passageway from death to life with Jesus. And he wrote a testimony about this just two years ago on the 30th anniversary. And he came to take this path through the testimony of a friend who was a fellow student who he said spoke of Jesus in a way that conveyed the reality of Jesus and his personhood and his love which could overwhelm and uh, redeem deep suffering. And also through the help of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And when he was writing about this, he, he wrote about having come to Jesus. He wasn't looking, but this, these testimonies were coming out, and he suddenly found there was something in him. It was that heartbeat for life that was tapped. And he began to explore, and he came to bow his knee to Jesus, that suddenly God, through Christ and the Spirit, began to make real changes in his life. There was a difference in the present. The power of sin had been broken, and this life was bubbling up in him. And this is how he writes about it. He says, God turned my moral life right side up. Until then, I had almost no moral conscience or guilt about lying, deceit, unfaithfulness, sexual sin, and I was indifferent to the plight of the poor and oppressed. I'm embarrassed by how satisfied I was with myself before. God gave me forgiveness, confession, love, and gratitude for my parents, which was an incredible thing in his story. He released me from a preoccupation with whether people liked me. Now it's just a partial occupation, he said. <laughs> I had no intellectual interest before, not in history, politics, philosophy, theology, science, art, music, nothing. But God awakened in my mind as well as my heart. The existential moment of, there's more, it's deeper, gave me a hunger for truth and a fascination with the world that, that lasts to this day, he says. And then he says, I've been planning a trip around the world, including a hike on the Inca Trail. But then I inexplicably, except for the Holy Spirit, started to think about the poor. So my fun trip to the Inca Trail turned into two months in a children's home in El Salvador during the Civil War and later working with Burmese students in Bangkok documenting the atrocities in Burma. That's evidence of sin's power being broken in the present and new life bubbling up within. Our lives begin to change from the inside out and it's reflected as we live and move and walk in the world. He writes, after 30 years of following Jesus, after his movement through the passage, he concluded this, I find that life and reality, I find life and reality to be what the scriptures teach it to be, made for love, gratitude, and worship, beautiful but broken, people mistaking the penultimate for the ultimate, signs of redemption everywhere, full of joy and grief, pregnant with hope, looking for a savior, Jesus promised life in its fullness, he says. And that has been my experience. He changes our life in the present. 
In fact, the burden of our text in Romans 6, the great exhortation is to live this new way now. Because Christ has died to sin, because our, in our union we too have died and we've taken this way out, because we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. So verses 12 and 13, look with me. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul's saying, look, the ground beneath you has shifted and changed. You are now standing on resurrection ground. There's been a transition. You've made a passageway through and you're in a new place and you must acclimate now to this new arena that you are in and live consistently with what has happened to you in the life-affirming realities of holiness and righteousness through the power of God's Spirit. To keep living in sin would be as ridiculous as departing Logan Airport in the dead of winter during February school vacation week, landing in Hawaii, and remaining bundled up in coats and hats and gloves. You're in a new place. It not only makes a difference in the present, but this union with Christ makes a, different for our, a difference for our future. We are sure that even though our current flesh and blood is wasting away and will end in physical death, that we will never die. We are united with the one who, verse 9, will never die again. And as Jesus rose from the grave, we will too. One day when this victorious king returns to earth to make all things new, we will get a new resurrection body. Some of you are thinking that can't come soon enough. A new resurrection body that is indestructible, incorruptible, and immortal. Thanks be to God. And this assured fact about our future infuses our present reality in this world of trial with great hope and becomes what the scriptures say, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. This living hope that is on full display on this Easter day. The deep longings for life in our bones are not the accidents of biology. They are the fingerprints of God smudged all over our souls. We want to live. And in Christ, we can live. By his resurrection, this passageway is opened from death to life. And that is the source of our joy today. It's the source of our music and these flowers and our singing and our feasting and even our tears. This celebration is because of the joy that Christ has been raised from the dead and we can be raised with him. Again, I know we're all across the map here, but if you're here and somebody dragged you here and you haven't already entered into life, I genuinely hope that you will by turning away from all the other lords, including perhaps maybe above all yourself, and yielding to Jesus as Lord, the forerunner, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the rescuer, the savior. And you can do that even now by simply acknowledging your brokenness and need, acknowledging all the ways that you've been running for life on your own strength and crying out to him, Jesus, be my Lord, my King, my Savior. And even if you're not ready to do that, I hope you'll keep asking questions. I hope you'll talk to the Christians that you know 
I hope you'll come back here and join us in the weeks to come. We'll continue looking at what it means and how to live the new life in Jesus together. If, on the other hand, you're one of those here who's already taken this passage, this way out, who's been united to Jesus by faith, then I want to encourage you and to remind you that whatever you're experiencing of the world of death, and I know that even a day like today for many of us can bring back really painful memories of grief, loved ones lost, trials gone through, whatever it is that you're experiencing in this world of trials and death, whatever you are fighting, remember this, that you are united to life himself. And nothing, nothing, as Paul will later write in the book of Romans, neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from Him, from His love, His winning love, His conquering love, His life-overflowing love, His personal love for you. Nothing can separate you from Him. Jesus is alive. He's alive forevermore. And so are you. Let's pray. We worship you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on this glorious day. And boldly we declare the reality of your victory over sin, evil, and death that has set us free. We are grateful, grateful children, grateful to be adopted into your family. And we pray, O God, that you will pour out your spirit afresh upon those gathered here, perhaps even some for the first time, who have been wondering what life is for, that you would call them to genuine life from the other side of the grave and enable them to enter in. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would encourage us with the truth and reality of your victory that we need not fear anymore because you, Lord Jesus, have been raised from the dead. You are the living, true King, and we worship you and glorify you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.